Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canelli, and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. Today, the co founder of Forge, and he has served on an apprenticeship training committee, the president of Stevenson Company, and is on the welding advisory committee at Washburn Institute of Technology. He's a volunteer at the Evil Knievel Museum in Topeka, Kansas, in which his expertise is in the antics of America's favorite daredevil. Please welcome to the show, Joe Pennington. Joe, welcome to Before the Lights. Thanks much. Let's start here and let the listeners know who Joe is before we get into evil. Talk to me about growing up in a steel worker's family. Okay, well, that's exactly what we did. I'm, I'm in my shop right now. If you hear the trains in the background, that's what that is. We're <laughs> in an industrial area. But uh, yeah, my grandfather was a sheet metal worker. My dad was a sheet metal worker. And um, I took over in 2006, the family business. We specialize in stainless steel with a special invention. It looks like a children's slide in a playground. It's a spiral chute, but it's made for potato chips or peppermints or chicken nuggets instead of children. So is that to regulate how much goes in each package then? It's to prevent breakage. So if the, normally the cooling of the product happens upstairs and the bagging happens downstairs straight below it. So product was dropping, you know, five, six, 10 feet and breaking. You don't want that to happen. You, you want your, all of your animal crackers to have heads on them. Right. Um, so we're the reason you can get a Dorito now about the size of a catcher's net. Joe, was it evil Knievel where you got your affinity for motorcycles or did, was it before that? Dad had a motorcycle when I was growing up. And uh, so we grew up around motorcycles, but the evil Knievel museum came to my hometown and I'm a hometown boy. So I volunteered at the evil Knievel museum and just started that process of learning a whole lot about America's favorite daredevil. As you said, you volunteered at the museum. It opened in 2017 in Topeka, Kansas. Let me ask this. How does an evil Knievel museum end up in Topeka, Kansas, which has the official approval of the Knievel estate? Yeah, that's a good question. Mike Patterson owns historic Harley Davidson. He's a third generation owner of historic Harley Davidson. And Historic Harley Davidson, as the name would imply, specializes in restoration of historic motorcycles. So owners of vintage motorcycles can buy parts through Mike or send their bikes to the shop. One one of the restorations that he did was Jerry Lee Lewis motorcycle. Jerry Lee Lewis got um, Harley Davidson in, uh, in the 50s. It was serial number one. It was kind of a product placement campaign by Harley Davidson. Evil got serial number two, or uh, sorry, Elvis got serial number two. So he wasn't used to taking second backseat to anybody, but he did in this case, Jerry Lee Lewis. So Jerry Lee Lewis had this motorcycle for years and years and uh, fell into disrepair as he traveled the world in concerts and everything. And, and, as he was getting older, he always had talked about restoring his Harley Davidson motorcycle. So eventually the family got a hold of Mike Patterson and said, Hey, can you restore dad's motorcycle? Mike goes to 
uh, what Memphis and picks up the motorcycle. It is in pieces, pieces. Like he went to pick up a motorcycle, but he ended up picking up about 25 gallon pickle buckets full of uh, parts, put this motorcycle back together and send it back to Jerry Lee Lewis. Of course he was surprised. He loved it so much that he displayed it for the rest of the time. He had it in his living room rather than the garage. Uh, and then eventually it, it auctioned off. It ended up being one of the top 10 price wise motorcycle sales at Mecham auctions. They had a family friend who was the, the premier evil Knievel collector in the world. His name's Lathan. And so the Jerry Lee Lewis family recommended to Lathan that he bring his uh, equipment to Mike Patterson's shop, historic Harley Davidson. Um, so Lathan's got motorcycles, but significantly he's got this old circus rig that evil Knievel used to drive around. It's a big, huge red, truck with a, a Mack truck in front and then a coach mm-hmm. where evil used his dressing room and then the rear where evil would drag around his custom-made cars his ramps his motorcycles so mike got charged or took on the the challenge of restoring the big red truck and once that was done then there was no place for it it became a traveling museum for a while just to show off the big red truck traveled the country to the uh, Mack truck and to the American truckers festival and to the evil could evil days in Butte, Montana, then to a Hollywood premiere with Johnny Knoxville. <clears throat> and then it, it didn't really have a place. So uh, it's permanent home became Topeka, Kansas. Mike built a big museum, 13,000 square feet around the big red truck. And that's, that was the start. That's the long story of the start of the evil, <laughs> evil museum. As you said it, Includes the 74 Mack truck and trailer, has stars, spangled helmets, outfits, motorcycles, cars. What kind of response do you hear from guests when they go in and see everything from this museum? Well, the response is we ha- we just had a response from uh, we had some NASCAR drivers in a couple weeks ago. And they said, I realized you had evil Knievel stuff here. I didn't realize you had all of evil Knievel stuff. So that's one response. We haven't got, had to give anybody their money back for being dissatisfied. It's, but it's easy to see something on, oh, I don't know, TripAdvisor or uh, the uh, Atlas Obscura and just think, well, this is just some roadside attraction, mm-hmm. which it is not. It is a world-class museum and it's gorgeous. But the number one response I get that I just absolutely love is when Guys your age walk into the museum at the entrance and they make this kind of fishing reel action with their hand and their wrist, which is sort of like a secret handshake, which means I had this toy that wound up in 1974 and it did wheelies. Yep. I remember that. Joe, are there any other exhibits or museums across the country of Evil Knievel or is this the only one? I think there's one somewhere in Niagara that I've heard about and maybe seen some snippets on uh, YouTube. Have you looked for any, you extensive researcher? I have. I mean, I know that Vegas at one time was in negotiations with the one that you have in Topeka, Kansas, but I haven't seen any other ones. I didn't know if there possibly could be other memorabilia that's out there that's on an exhibit somewhere or not. Um, I don't know. I think there is in Niagara. Uh, I haven't been there. 
And then there used to be one at the highway or the Route 66 Museum in Miami, Oklahoma, but that's also closed and we got most of their stuff. Evil attempted more than 75 ramp-to-ramp motorcycle jumps. He attended a Joey Chitwood auto daredevil show, which was the reason in wanting to become a stuntman. Do you have any background on how all this developed? Yeah, Joey Chitwood happens to be from Topeka. Did you know that? I did not. Yeah, Joey Chitwood was a welder at a metal shop in Topeka, just like what I do. And uh, he moved. Are you familiar with Joey Chitwood? A little bit, not extensively. Yeah, he's he's got a pretty neat little story. He moved here after World War II and lived with his sister and worked at a muffler shop where he welded together pipes. And one, the state fair was in Topeka, and they somebody had a broken hot rod and brought it in for Joey Chitwood to repair, which he did. And then Joey Chitwood delivered the car to the fairgrounds. The uh, driver was too drunk to participate in the race. So Joey said, well, if you've already paid the admission fee, I'll, I'll jump in and, and race your car, which he did. And he won his first race. He won his second race, fell in love with racing and the racing community fell in love with him. He was a fantastic race car driver. He could take his car up on two wheels like all left or all right and drive around a whole track like that. And then he started ramp to ramp jumps through flaming hoops over other cars, over motorcycles. Uh, and then it became a whole traveling circus that had, you know, rodeo clowns and fire and everything you would need. Uh, one of the stops on the Joey Chitwood circuit circuit was uh, Butte, Montana, where a young impressionable evil Knievel went to go see him and, crashed into a wall or something and burst into flames and said, man, that's exactly what I want to do the rest of my life. <laughs> so he went home and uh, pulled the, he had a bicycle. He pulled the garage doors off his parents' place or grandparents. He lived with his grandparents. His parents left him when he was a little kid and um, pulled one door off, set it up on a bucket so that he made a Joey Chitwood style ramp. He pulled the other door off and made a landing ramp. And in between the two, he raked together a whole bunch of yard waste and, and planned to light in a fire, which he did after he invited all his neighbors to pay a nickel to watch him make this jump. <laughs> and so that was the, that's how evil, that was evil's first public stunt. And it was the day that he burnt his grandparents' garage doors. <laughs> Joe, are you familiar with the story on how he made an earth mover do a motorcycle wheelie? And drove it into the main power line in leaving Butte, Montana without electricity. Yeah, that was the last straw for Anaconda Mines. They hired him. They hired everybody in the town. The whole town of Butte was a mining town. Um, the, there were uh, thousands and thousands of miners and probably even more prostitutes. But uh, so what you would do is you go to high school and once you graduate, or even if you don't, you go to work at the Anaconda mines. He was hired as a driver to bring crews from the parking lot and shuttle them over to the head of the mines in the mornings. But there were so many complaints about his bad driving that they reassigned him to the earth mover. And yeah, he had the bulldozer load up the very rear of that earth mover so that he could get that, counterweight in the very back and, and do a wheelie. I don't know that he took down the power line on purpose, but he did take down that power <laughs> line and got fired. 
Can you tell the story on how he obtained the nickname Evil after spending a night in jail in 1956? Yeah, the legend is that uh, we've got this teenager running around town. He's just a hoodlum, right? Raising hell and racing his motorcycle around, outrunning police on the motorcycle. But it's not the first time he gets arrested. One day he does get arrested and gets thrown in a cell in Butte, Montana. Uh, there happened to be a murder the previous week, and the murderer was named Knoffel, something Knoffel. And so as the day watch switched hands off to the night watch, the guard says, watch out for this couple. It's evil, can evil, and awful, can awful. And that's how the legend began. Yeah. And he he always wanted to be a white hat, though. He always wanted to be a, a good guy. Despite of himself, he, he had these terrible tendencies to be a bad boy, but he, he wanted to be a white hat. So he changed the letters to E-V-E-L instead of E-V-I-L. But it also coincides with the last four letters of his last name. So maybe that's why. Listeners, I'm going to read off some stuff that Evil Knievel did in his life. He wasn't just always a daredevil. He participated in professional rodeos. Ski jumping, he was a pole vaulter on the track team. He started a semi-hockey team called the Butte Bombers. He was a successful insurance salesman. He operated a motorcycle dealership and even started Sir Kill Guide Services for hunting. And then in 1961, he hitchhiked from Butte, Montana to Washington, D.C. to raise awareness to have the elk relocated to an area where hunting was permitted. Is there any of this stuff in the museum by chance, Joe, about these things he did? Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a con to every single one of those stories. It sounds like <laughs> uh, one of my favorites. And this was a, an inspiration. Your show is, is called how they made their mark. And one of those stories is for the combined insurance company of Chicago. It was owned by W Clement stone. He was also an author. So he's like, um, uh, Tony Robbins kind of guy. He writes these books that anything that you can visualize, you can make a reality just by using a positive mental attitude at PMA. So evil buys into all of this, the, the whole thing and wants to go work for W Clement stone writes to W Clement stone, man, I, I was so inspired by your book. I want to come work for you at combined insurance of Chicago, which he is hired by W. Clement Stone as an insurance salesman, still is in Butte. And the combined insurance company has a, a competition, a national competition, which was just coincidentally called I Dare You Week to see who could sell the most policies in one week. Evil Knievel blows all of the records out of the water by selling 110 policies in one day at a mental institution. <laughs> The man was the ultimate hustler, the ultimate yes. hustler. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what stunt launched him from county fairs to becoming a household name? Or was the big break for Evil Knievel the Joey Bishop show? Uh, Evil did these stunts. He, he'd just do it for hamburgers outside the drive-in, the uh, you know, he'd ride up a, a rough road up the side of a mountain and uh, the 
just for the entertainment of people that were parked there. That wasn't his big break. His his big break was in Caesar's Palace, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's his biggest break. He he had been on television before just for a few minutes, like 14 seconds on ABC's Wide World of Sports. But he's in 1967, he switched from a black motorcycling outfit and leathers to red, white, and blue. He wanted to be counter to the counterculture. And also he wanted to stand out. And the prevailing culture seemed to be, from what I read, I didn't live through it, but, you know, hippies spitting on soldiers and, and you got uh, Watergate about to, to, break, to break open. Uh, so he wants to be a patriot, but he's not getting much work. He tried this Joey Chitwood style show where he hired little people and had outhouses and clowns and and motorcycle and the uh, high wire act and all this stuff. But he couldn't make payroll. Um, he broke his back. So nobody was going to go see the show without evil. Can evil it? So he's sitting at a bar in Butte, Montana with nothing better to do. And when one of his friends say, Hey, did you hear Rick Rouse is boxing in Vegas this weekend? And Rick Rouse is a local uh, butte. So uh, athlete. So evil says, no, I didn't hear that. And so they, they pile in the van. They said that we're, we're going to go support our local buddy, fellow butte, butte, butician. I don't know what a beauty in. And uh, we're going to, road trip it to Vegas and support Rick. So they do just that. They pull up to the, where the venue is to check it out before the venue. And it happens to be at Caesar's palace. Caesar's palace is this brand new $25 million hotel built by Jay Sarnos. And, you know, it's got the Greek columns and the hostess is dressed like Olympian goddesses and it's just beautiful. And they, they cannot afford to stay there at the hotel, but they can afford a beer. So they belly up to the bar and uh, one of his buddies says, you know, this place doesn't have an entertainer, a house entertainer like Sinatra over at the Sands or Sammy Davis Jr. over at the Dune. You ought to do your motorcycle tricks here. That's that would be a real draw. Uh, and you could be their house entertainment here at Caesar's Palace. There's look at those fountains. You could jump over those fountains. And Evil said, "Yeah, the more I drank, the smaller the fountains got." To where I decided, "Yeah, I'm going to go jump those fountains." So I'm going to call the owner, Jay Sarnos, and introduce himself and just work out a deal. So he calls Jay Sarnos. Hey, it's Evil Knievel. Can I speak with Mr. Sarnos, please? And the receptionist is a gatekeeper, and she doesn't know Evil Knievel, even though he explains I was famous. I was on ABC's Wide World of Sports for 14 seconds last year. <laughs> and um, so he begins to disguise his voice so he can get patched through, right? Hi, it's Rick Hildeman from ABC's Wide World of Sports, and I understand that Evil Knievel is jumping your fountains on New Year's Eve, just calling to make sure you have enough rooms for me and my entire crew. Sarno says, never heard of it. Click. Hey, it's Sammy Smith from Sports Illustrated. My boss told me to come take pictures of this Evil Knievel character jumping your fountains on New Year's Eve. What time does that start? Sarno says, call me back. (laughs) 
And uh, eventually Evil Can Evil does about a half a dozen of these different voices. One, The last of which is a, a lawyer accent. Hello, this is Saul Rosenberg. I understand that uh, you are promoting an event in which my client, Evil Can Evil, is to jump your fountains. Now, I'm inclined to sue you because we do not have such an agreement to do this event. Uh, as it happens, I'm going out of town to Europe with another of my clients. You may have heard of Lawrence Welk. But coincidentally, Evil Knievel is in Las Vegas and available to meet with you tomorrow. And by then, Sarnos is, send him up. Right? <laughs> so Evil goes at the appointed time up the elevator to uh, introduce himself and meet in person with Sarnos. And the receptionist excitedly jumps out of her chair, rushes back to Sarno's office and she can hear, or he can hear her saying, he's here, he's here, he's here. <laughs> right? And then Sarnos bursts out both arms extended. Where you been boy? I've been looking all over for you. <laughs> so this is the one that really put him on the map. Um, Sarnos had a whole lot of money to put behind the, the promotion of that event so that people did show up and a whole lot of people did show up. And uh, Evil Knievel had to pay to have that filmed himself. ABC's Wild World of Sports would not come cover it. And so he owned that film of the, it's pretty famous. I'm sure you've seen it, Tommy, of him kind of ragdolling around the parking lot there. Broke two ankles, broke both of his wrists, broke his uh, pelvis, broke his collarbone, broke his femur, broke a whole lot. And uh, that, I guess you would call it that, video went viral back in the day but it, it was a lot more physically taking it from place to place evil owned that footage and he took it on the joey bishop show and he took it on a dick cavett show and anywhere that that he could and spread the word of the name evil knievel is there any truth to what you know about evil knievel that he had this love of wild turkey and would do a shot before each one of his jumps yeah. Yeah. That's true. Every single jump that I know of, he was, he would do at least a shot of wild Turkey. <laughs> he should have got a sponsorship from wild Turkey. He should have, man. <laughs> do you know the story behind how he was able to do the uh, snake Canyon jump in 1974? Oh, well, yeah, he had, he had this idea that he was going to jump over the grand Canyon for years and he would take that story and present it as if it was true on these talk shows. I'm going to jump the Grand Canyon. I'm going to jump the Grand Canyon. And so the whole buildup to that was years in the making. Stuart Udolph, the Secretary of the Interior under, uh, I don't know, who's 1974? Nixon or Carter. <laughs> uh, anyways, Stuart Udall said, you're not jumping over the Grand Canyon. That's that's uh, a federal trade, national treasure. So he arranged to get some property near his home in, in Boise or uh, Twin Falls, Idaho. And just, so he secured the land, didn't have a rocket. He had this really hokey looking trike with two jet engines kind of duct taped onto it. And he took that around the country saying, I'm going to jump over the canyon in this. Um, I think, I think uh, Robert Truax called him and said, Hey, I'm an ex NASA engineer. I can really get you over that canyon. So he was very fortunate to have a real engineer step in and, and offer to do that. 
Man, there is a lot to that story. That is a long, long story. One of the impacts of that whole thing was pay-per-view television. Not very popular up to that point. Uh, boxing was was kind of a niche sport that people would pay for for through pay-per-view or direct television, or you'd drive to the movies and, and give the movies some dollars to watch the live feed from Vegas. But uh, evil hired Vince McMahon, a young Vince McMahon Jr. He was a young wrestling promoter out of uh, uh, Connecticut or somewhere East and uh, kind of wanted to get out from under his father's shadow in the, in the wrestling world, make him a name for himself. So Vince, signed on with evil Knievel and part of his deal was he really wanted to switch to this pay-per-view rather than, uh, well, rather than not even going. So Vince bought cameras and bought redundant cameras and laid wire and uh, secured rights to the wires around the whole country to set up this pay-per-view. And many, many people went a lot more people watched that than watched boxing previous and then a whole lot more watched it for wrestlemanias over the years this is my story no symptoms to being diagnosed with colon cancer which led to four surgeries and a 50 50 survival rate it then spread to my liver in which only 3% are caught in time. Now, a 1% chance it ever comes back. And I'm on the road to inspiring everyone because you have three choices. Live, die, or fight. Bernie Siegel said, no matter what the statistics say, there's always a way. To book me, Tommy Canale, to speak to your event or group, Go to TommyCanale.com. That's TommyCanale.com. And get ready to be inspired to inspire others because you're one day away from changing your life. Click the link in the show notes. Do you think it was the fame, the thrill, the money, or all that kept him coming back to perform? That's a really great question. What do you think? I think it's all of it. Yeah. I think Evil enjoyed the fame. I, I think he definitely enjoyed the thrill. It was definitely for the money. I think it was all of it because to beat up your body as bad as Evil Knievel did, most people would say, all right, I'm done. But he just kept coming back and coming back to perform. I think it's all of it. I think you're right. 1977, Shark Jump was the final retirement. Mm-hmm. Can you speak about what happened during that jump to my listeners? Yeah, 1977 was the worst year of Evil Knievel's life. He was, as you said, it was his final retirement. So he was kind of uh, courted out of retirement, which was what, uh, which was King's Island, which was his greatest moment. You know, in in that year, Evil got to perform with his son, got to leap over the the largest gap um, was on national television. It was the highest rated show in ABC's wide world of sports history and uh, gets to 
walk out the top of the ramp, you know, with the wind blowing his hair and his cape flowing and say, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for these many, many years of support. I, I retire. And he should have stayed that way, except CBS called him and said, if ABC is done with you, we have this new technology we'd like to try out. Uh, and we want to do a big spectacular, all centered around you. They're speaking of evil, Knievel's ego, um, which lies very thin right under his skin. And uh, so they had arranged to have many different daredevils from around the world perform stunts all at the same, all on the same evening while they switched from venue to venue to venue using new satellite television technology. Um, So the show, the whole show turned out to be a disaster. It was hosted by Telly Savalas and he switched. He said, we're going to go to Butte, Montana um, and watch the snowmobiler do a flip. But it was blizzard conditions. You couldn't see it. So right after this commercial break, we'll show you the Willinda brothers going on a tightrope across two skyscrapers in Miami. Well, when they got back, it turned out to be too windy. They had a Russian guy that that was advertised to blow himself up. He puts 30 pounds of dynamite under his chair and goes sky high. Well, for his American debut, he used 50 pounds of dynamite instead of 30 uh, instead of his black leather motorcycling outfit. He um, rents a tuxedo and goes sky high, comes down, lands on his head. Um, the press rushes in. What happened? What happened? How it happened? He says, no interview, no interview. So they, uh, he wants to go back to the plane and st- he wants to go home. He didn't want to go back to the hotel. So they pile him in a limousine, send him towards the airport. He says, one stop, one stop, where he goes to the dry cleaner and throws this shredded tuxedo through the window. <laughs> The, the whole show is like that. What happened the day the day of, so hours before the live feed, Evil Knievel was directed to make a practice jump. Uh, he got in a fight with the young producer of the show, who I think was Brett Musburger. And um, anyway, ended up punching one of the crew and strapped on his helmet, took his shot of his shot of wild turkey and said, you want a practice run? I'll show you a practice run. Hits the throttle, um, comes up, makes it over this tank of 13 live sharks. Well, seven of them were live. The rest of them didn't quite survive the trip from Florida <laughs> in, in January in Chicago. Right. Uh, so he doesn't make it, but he does slip off the side of the ramp into a cameraman. The cameraman loses his eyesight and evil can evil broken both of his arms. So all that is to say that you and I watched this in our living room for two hours, waiting for Evil Knievel to show up. And uh, Telly Savalas says, Evil won't be here. He's in the hospital. But we have this mediocre footage from what happened earlier today. They not only told us that live in our living rooms, but they let people in the Chicago International Amphitheater to buy T-shirts, beer, popcorn, thinking they were going to see Evil Knievel. So that was bad. <laughs> That's it, bad. He did not have a, a retirement announcement after that. He he was laid up in the hospital and got lots and lots of hate. So much angry mail about that, that his lawyer advised him not to open that mail. Um, we got bags and bags of unopened mail when we opened the museum and we did open it all. And it wasn't nearly as much hate mail as his lawyer had feared. So we have a whole bunch of really nice love letters and fan mail 
in the museum. Cool. Can you talk about evil being known for keeping his word, even when he knew some of these jumps he was going to do were questionable? Yeah, I think that Snake River Canyon was the, was the pinnacle of that. He was convinced he was going to die. He really was convinced he was going to die in that moment. But like he said, what am I going to do? Give them their money back? <laughs> <laughs> well, when your life's on the line, you might want to think about that. <laughs> but Evil just said full throttle, we're going ahead. Yes. Do you have any knowledge of what happened when he had an assault on his promoter for the Snake River Canyon by the name of Shelly Saltman, who wrote a book called Evil Knievel on Tour, and Evil was given three years probation and six months in jail after pleading guilty to battery. Yeah, I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I said that 1977 was the worst year of Evil Knievel's life, this is like a continuation that's of that snake or the of the shark tank wreck. So Evil's got these two casts on he's released from the hospital and he decides i am done with he didn't have a retirement speech but he is done right he's done, he's done hurting himself and in addition to that he had injured an innocent bystander the cameraman while he was reportedly drunk so um he's enough of that easy enough there's other ways to make money right one of them is in hollywood so he heads to hollywood uh, teams up with Universal Pictures, films The Bionic Woman with Lindsay Wagner. Um, goes on the Sonny and Cher show with one of his big trike motorcycles and films this movie Viva Knievel with a whole bunch of it his, his, of his equipment. Meantime, this book comes out by Shelly Saltman and it's kind of a, a unsavory rendition or recollection of their experience together shelly saltman and evil knievel shelly had permission to write the book it was authorized by evil knievel every quotation in it was recorded on um, a recording device which is you can't secretly tr transplant or plant a uh, a mic in the 1970s <laughs> like a shoebox you know so he wore this thing around his neck uh i guess evil doesn't exactly dispute that any of the the quotes are inaccurate, but he didn't like seeing this stuff in print about womanizing and alcoholism. Two things that he would brag about on Johnny Carson or, or whatever TV show he could get on, but he didn't like seeing it in print. So he buys the book, takes it up to his hotel room along with his wild Turkey and starts, begins to read the book and discovering what it's all about. These two had got the idea from Muhammad Ali and his promoter, incidentally and uh evil just kind of starts foaming at the mouth and, and writing in the margins lies 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 tearing pages out when all of a sudden it dawns on him that no good son of a gun shelly saltman is also done with sports he's also trying to get into the movies i'm gonna go pay him a visit true enough shelly saltman was working at fox at the time or 20th century Fox at the time. And he's on his way to lunch one day. It's not uncommon for him to see famous people at Fox waves to one of them or, or sees evil can evil and um, doesn't think anything of it. Cause this was all authorized. He doesn't know evil can evil's pissed. 
Evil had hired a thug to hold Shelly down while Evil Knievel beats him. How could Evil Knievel beat him, uh, you know, without hiring somebody? He's got these two casts on. But he does have a an aluminum baseball bat, hits Shelly in the head. Shelly's able to save his skull by crossing his arms and fractured both of his uh, forearms and had to have lots of surgery over that, but ends up in a unconscious in a pool of blood. Witnesses think they might've just saw a scene being filmed, but realize, Hey, that's real blood. That's not fake blood. And that's not an actor. That's the guy from the VHS department that does all the dubbing. So I guess maybe that's the real evil can evil put out a warrant for evil's arrest. Evil turns himself in the next day, um, appears before the judge lawyer pleads not guilty on his client's behalf. Evil shuts the lawyer down. Guilty as charged, Your Honor. Um, only regret I have is I didn't finish the job. <laughs> Judge says, that's very refreshing. You're going to jail. So, as you said, he was sentenced to jail. Um, but it was more than an imprisonment. It, it, was, uh, it was the end of his everything. It was the end of his marriage. All his sponsors pulled out. When all the sponsors pulled that, you know, and you can understand chuckles mm-hmm. candy says, you're no role model for kids. And Harley Davidson rips up their contract. And his big money maker was this ideal toy wheelie car. And um, they rebranded that to team America from evil can evil. So he didn't have any income anymore. And once the income dried up then the creditors moved in and took the yacht, seven boats, all of his motorcycles, custom made cars, um, two Learjets. He had one Learjet with his name painted on the side of it, realized he couldn't read the name painted on the side of it while he was flying. So he had another identical to fly alongside, took the helicopter. I mean, they took everything that took the house and he went to jail. Shelly Saltman sued him and was awarded $12.7 million. Evil Knievel kind of made it his life's mission not to repay a dime to that SOB. And so he didn't do any more movies, didn't do any more television or stunts or sports or motorcycles or anything, really. He hustled golf for cash or maybe sign autographs at the local uh, car park or something. I, but it was spite that, that he never, never snapped out of it. Because, you know, there's so many people, they just, you apologize and you move on. They're, you know, there's careers after mm-hmm. missteps. But he just made it his life's mission to stay broke. It's, it was too bad. I mean, you know, the end of his life was tough, too. He passed away in 2007 at 69 years of age from pulmonary disease. And he had a repercussion of years of damaging his body and paid the toll later in life. He was diagnosed with terminal lung disease. He had an internal morphine pump put in for pain. And he suffered two strokes in his lifetime before he finally passed away. Evil even though he did live broke and he, and he was broke. He had uh, there's a letter in the museum that he wrote to the IRS that says, Hey, I got your collection letter last month. Need you to understand something about evil can evil. I don't have any money. If I ever do have an extra 20 or 30 bucks, I take all my creditors name up, put them in a hat. I pull one out and I send them, you know, 20 bucks or so. <laughs> and if you don't stop sending me nasty letters, I'm not putting your name in the hat anymore. <laughs> so, so there's that. Speaking regarding Evil Knievel's drive, his determination, and this positive mindset that he had. 
Okay. Well, I think I think that definitely has its roots with the W. Clement Stone, and he um, espoused that to, through his entire career. You know, and he influenced millions of us children and and adults too. Like to kids, it was if he can jump over that um, canyon, I can jump over the creek with my bicycle. And uh, the inspiration to adults would be like. He was unapologetically patriotic. And I think that influenced a lot of people too. Like, it's okay. It's okay to wear red, white, and blue. You can do that. Is there a tale of a visitor to the museum who actually stood up to his abusive father after learning more about evil? Oh, yeah, man. That's that's so cool. That We have... Somebody asked me what the best part about the museum is. Well, what's your favorite thing in the museum? And I was like, visitors, man, I get the coolest, most touching stories from, from visitors. You know, I do, when I do tours, I'm doing 90% of the talking because that's just the, the nature of the job. But I'm going through with the museum with this guy and we get to one of the displays that has a list of evil could evil's charitable contributions like to the 4-H club or to the boy scouts of america and one of them is an orphanage evil sent a whole orphanage of of kids to his shows he never wanted to leave a kid disappointed so and orphans held a special place in his heart too because um evil's parents both uh moved away from butte when he was a very young child and left him with his grandparents so anyways I'm telling the story of these orphans and this guy says, yeah, you know, I guess I'm lucky to have parents, but they weren't the greatest parents in the world. My, uh, I never knew my real dad, who my real dad was. My mom just kind of slept around with, with anybody, but eventually this one guy did kind of stick and he, you know, he was my role model. He, he'd go rob gas stations or uh, liquor stores. And I thought that was okay. Cause he's buying us groceries. But so that's where I, I grew up and, and I always had to work. I sacked groceries at a, at a place at a nearby grocer. Cause I wanted to save up some money. I got, I was in high school and I, they advertised this class ring. You're a senior this year. You ought to have a class ring. And I thought I ought to have a class ring. So I worked and, and every week I saved my money until I finally had enough for that class ring and I was going to graduate. And so I ordered it and got it. And one day I went to work and got off. At, at, it was the morning shift and I got off and I went home and my, and my mom's arguing with this scumbag and She's saying, where'd you get the money to buy that weed? And he says, none of your business, but they, they got into it. And it turned out that the guy admitted he stole the kid's class ring, melted it down, sold it at a pawn shop so he could buy weed. And uh, the, the fight escalates. He starts beating the mom and the, the kid just wants to crawl in a hole. So, so he goes down into the basement, turns on the television and it's evil Knievel and evil Knievel's about to do this jump. And he thinks if evil Knievel can make this jump, I can stand up to that scumbag. So evil Knievel makes the jump. The kid goes upstairs, throws the scumbag up against the wall, tells him never to touch his mother again. And uh, the guy leaves and, and the guy and uh, never to be seen again. So 
Evo had an impact on millions, but Evo had impact he didn't even know on the, on such an individual basis that he could never have known. I would agree with you. Talk about the induction into the Motorcycle Hall of Fame for Evil Knievel. I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about that. Other okay. than I watched it, and uh, he was, he didn't look like the same Evil Knievel <laughs> I remember. Got time for one more story, though. Absolutely, go ahead. Okay, this is at the end. Doctor Reverend Robert Schuler had this program that uh, was was an inspirational program. It was called the Hour of Power, and it was broadcast live from the Crystal Cathedral in Pasadena, California. And he was kind of a, he was a motivator himself. You know, he was a W. Clement Stone with a whole lot of Jesus sprinkled onto it. And um, one day, Dr. Reverend Robert Schuler gets a phone call on the other end of the line said, hey, this is Robert Knievel. I invented evil Knievel. I was evil Knievel and I evil Knievel a whole lot of people over my life. I was watching your program today and, and found God and I took my whiskey bottle and I threw it on the beach and I said, you can go live with the Satan. You can go live with the eels and the squids, but no longer part of my life. I'm done drinking, I'm done womanizing. I'm done treating the people the way that I have. Um, I'm real remorseful about it. And I want to come on your program and get baptized next week. So Schuler flies to Florida to find that uh, evil is sincere and repentant, flies back to meet with his staff at the Crystal Cathedral, says, don't know what you kids had planned for this week, but it's off. Uh, we're going to baptize evil can evil. One of the staff members says, evil can evil. Isn't he that guy that tried to kill his biographer 30 years ago? Yeah. Why? Well, because Shelly Saltman is a friend of my family and he lives like 15, 20 minutes away in Los Angeles. So Schuler takes the hint, calls up Shelly Saltman says, hi, Shelly. I understand that you're not a Christian, but I have this program and it would mean a lot to me if you would come on and it would mean the world to my congregation, which is millions of viewers around the world. And it would, it would mean even more to evil Knievel, if you could come to his baptism ceremony and talk about forgiveness. Hello. <laughs> right. No, no response for a whole minute. And then Shelly responds. Yes, I will come to his baptism ceremony on one condition. If I get to be the one holding his head underwater. <laughs> so they go through the baptism ceremony without, um, Shelly Saltman there, but evil gives a real stirring speech. It's on YouTube. Now the hour of power, and uh, then dies months later from uh, officially one of any of those things that you just said, but officially pulmonary fibrosis. How has evil Knievel inspired Joe Pennington? Ah, uh, yeah, man. It's pretty incredible to run across somebody that I think he says something inspirational in every single quote I read. He's so funny. And, and, um, uh, but it's that positive mental attitude that has really inspired me to do anything, everything. And uh, that that's where that comes from. Has evil helped you in your business in any aspect? Yeah, probably so. Yeah. I'm, I'm unafraid to call customers. I'm, I'm always up for a challenge and I, and I always challenge myself to come up with new innovations. Um, I don't, I don't know that that's directly from evil can evil, but I spend a, a day out of every week at that evil can evil museum kind of getting it pounded into me that 
you're going to have a positive attitude and there's nothing you cannot do. Tell my listeners the days and hours of operation for the museum in Topeka, Kansas. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I can't wait for people to come to the museum. It's my it's, visitors are my favorite part. The days and the hour were open Tuesday through Saturday. So in other words, close Sunday and Monday and the hours are generally 10 to five daytimes. And what's the cost of admission? $15. And then there's discounts for veterans and seniors. And there's a little upcharge for a really fun virtual reality experience. It's five, five bucks to get on this uh, motorcycle, strap the VR goggles on you. You sit on a, uh, a real motorcycle on Evil Knievel's ramps that vibrates now with the headphones sounds and uh, with fans blow on your left side. If you're turning left or right, if right, it's a really fun, fun ride. Cool. I'll put a link in the show notes, listeners, so you can click on it and check out the museum. And if you're in the area, please go by, see Joe, say hello, say, hey, I listened to you on Before the Lights. You guys can have a nice chat and go check out the museum. In today's real estate market, you need to work with a real estate professional who you can trust. Amy Canelli is a proud member of the Berkshire Hathaway Home Services Network in Nevada. She will provide the absolute finest service, dedication, and expertise possible Whether you want to buy, sell, or rent, Amy can help make your home ownership dreams come true. To contact Amy, call 480-685-1217, go to her website, amycanally.com, or click the link in the show notes, BS0146092. Joe, thanks for your time and coming on the show. Yeah, likely, Tommy. You're fun. Thank you so much. Listeners, follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. And I think this is a great time for you guys to go to the website and click on the docu-series and check out the 11 episode that I did with Antonino D'Ambrosio, who is a film director. We did a podcast docu-series in support of Native American rights on the harsh and unfair treatment of the indigenous community. So check out the docu-series there. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, I salute a chin chin.